When I was in junior high school, our school tried to scare us to death about the danger of using drugs. And the way they did that, perhaps you experienced something similar to this, is they would bring us into this room and they showed us this video. And on this video were a bunch of high school students who were at a party and all of a sudden the parents weren't there so the drug paraphernalia gets pulled out. And sure enough, one of the students at the party who's taking drugs flatlines. And so they need to call the ambulance, and the ambulance comes and rushes the kid to the hospital. They call the parents. The parents rush to the hospital. The parents are sobbing. Tubes are being put in veins and noses and so forth. And the moral of the story the school wanted to get across was, this is what's going to happen to you if you take drugs. And we were scared to death. It worked. So we resolved right there. We're never taking drugs in our lives. A year later in high school, very similar situation. Were your schools this cruel, by the way? I'm being serious here. Did you guys have this? A year later in high school, they had another assembly where they gathered us all together and they started passing out these lungs, petrified lungs of real people who had smoked their entire lives and we had to touch it and look at it. And again, what's the moral of the story? If you smoke, this is what's going to happen to you. And my friends and I were like, we're never doing that. We're, we're never going to smoke. And yet, an interesting thing happened. A couple years later, when they all turned 16, which is when you get your driver's license there, all the parties involved drugs, and almost all of my friends were smoking, and I had to ask a question. I was asking myself a question, like, what happened here? How can we say that we believe one thing, I and mean, we believe these things are unhealthy and unwise, and we're not going to do it, we're committed to that, and then just a couple years later, we've already broken that. And as I look back on that, I realize that's something that happens to me almost on a daily or weekly basis, right? Where I say one thing, and yet I live in a different way. I say, I believe this, and yet what I say I believe doesn't always match up with the way I live. And the unfortunate result of this is we just, if we step back and look at the macro level, is that as Christians, what happens is we end up blending into our environment instead of standing out in our environment. Last week, as Chuck already mentioned, we had Vision Sunday here, and we believe God is calling us as a church to make and become disciples, right? We're becoming disciples, and we define what a disciple is by this phrase. A disciple is someone who is fully surrendered to Christ. Christ is after full surrender, and so for me, part of what that means is not just saying I believe certain things about Jesus, but backing that up by the way I live. And so for these next two weeks, what Jeff and I kind of decided to do before we start this Ten Commandments series is to kind of look at that. What is it going to take for us, really, as God's people who are declaring war on shallow Christianity to become fully surrendered disciples. And so we're each going to take a shot at that. And this morning, if you're following on your notes, here's the conclusion I've come to. To be a fully surrendered disciple requires something called resolve. Resolve. And I'm going to explain what that word means in a little while, but what I'd like to do with us this morning is to take a look at a person in the Bible who I think found himself in a very similar situation culturally speaking, to where we find ourselves today as Christians. His name is Daniel. Have you ever heard of him? We all know Daniel and the lion's den. Of course, that's not the story I want to look at this morning. Just to give you a little background on Daniel, if you don't know, Daniel was a teenage boy who was ripped from his home in Jerusalem and brought to the capital of the world at this time, Babylon. And history tells us that Babylon was perhaps the most secular, pagan, materialistic society at the time. Does that sound familiar at all? 
And Daniel was faced with a very real challenge. Would he conform to the culture that he was brought into, or would he choose something different? And I'm just going to say right up front, this is a decision we face every time we walk outside of our doors, isn't it? Am I going to conform to the culture that I live in, or am I going to choose something different? It's the question we face today, and if you have your Bible, I'd like to look at how Daniel answers that question by turning to Daniel chapter 1. And again, if you have your own Bible, which we encourage you to bring every week because we want to be first-handers in God's Word here, and you're still getting used to where things are, Daniel is a little bit past halfway. You come to some of those big books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. Daniel is immediately after Ezekiel, and if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We have black Bibles there, hopefully in the seat in front of you, and you can find Daniel 1 on page 613, and I encourage you to follow along. We're going to go through the whole chapter. Now, a couple of introductory thoughts here as you're turning there. Daniel 1 is my favorite story in the Bible. When I have thought in my past, I've spoken on it before, but when I think about declaring war on shallow Christianity beginning with me, beginning right here, because that is a declaration I needed to make daily, I have gone back to this chapter of the Bible over and over and over and over again in my life, starting, like I told you, already in junior high. And my hope and prayer for us has been this week is that we might glean something from Daniel's response to the culture that he was placed in, which again, I think is similar to what we are facing today. And so, I'm going to warn you, this isn't going to be like, this is a challenging message. I'll just say it that way. This is going to be a challenging message. So I just want to warn you about that and get you ready for that. Uh, Resolve isn't an easy thing, is it? It's not an easy thing. So let's pray and offer this time up to the Lord together. Lord, I thank you so much for what this passage has meant in my life, and you know I want nothing more than it to have the same kind of impact on some people here this morning. Your word is active and living, we believe that, and we call you to do that in our hearts right now through this story. Help us to learn from Daniel what you want us to learn as we face our culture in this world today. We pray these things together in Jesus' name, amen. Daniel 1.1, everybody ready? Everybody awake? Everybody excited? Got God's word? All right. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now, I just want to pause here in the story for a moment because there's a lot going on, but I want you to see two specific things and how it relates, I think, to us still today as we are being, trying to be Christians or fully surrendered disciples in an increasingly non-Christian world. First of all, 
I want you to notice right away, who is it that gave Jerusalem, who gave Judah over to the Babylonian Empire? Who, who, who did that? The Lord did it. It says right there in verse 2, the Lord handed Jehoiakim over. He handed the nation of Israel over. Now, of course, if you know biblical history, God warned the people of Israel that this would happen if they didn't follow His commands. And sure enough, if you read the Old Testament, they're not very good at that. And so sure enough, 587 B.C. comes along. And the Babylonian Empire, the biggest empire of the time, comes and they destroy Jerusalem. And one of the things uh, that I want us to understand today is that God was not surprised by that. We talked about a word several weeks ago in the message I gave on Job. God is sovereign, yeah? That means he is in control of every area of our lives, every area of this world. He wasn't surprised by the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. It was a part of his plan. And yet, I find comfort in that, and yet I'm also distressed by that. I don't know about you. Because what we discover in stories like Daniel here in chapter 1, if you're falling on your notes there, is that God is sovereign, he's in complete control, he knows what he's doing, he's not surprised, and yet, he allows tests to come our way. He allows tests to come our way. He is testing the Jewish people here. And that includes people like Daniel. What are they going to do when the capital of their country is destroyed, they're taken into captivity? Are they still going to stand for him? Now, i got to say, let's bring that to the 21st century in the United States. God is not in heaven right now going, wow, I'm really surprised by all this Christian anti-sentiment here facing the, these people in the United States right now. I didn't see this coming at all. I just got to say, I believe that we may as a country be going through a time of testing, a time of refining, and God is testing our faith to see how we are going to respond to these sort of things. He is sovereign, but he allows tests to come our way. And the question is, how are we going to face this test? It's a question Daniel faced, and it's a question I face and you face every day. Now back to Daniel. I, I always want to put myself in these characters' shoes. I always want to think about it. I don't want to just read a story, a dead story. I want to make it alive, right? I want you to imagine with me this situation. Daniel is no more than 14 years old. That, that's Max. I mean, I'm, I'm putting a cap on He's probably a little bit younger than this. So imagine this. He's 14, perhaps younger, and he's ripped from his home. He's ripped from everything that's familiar to him. He's ripped from his family, and he's placed into the most pagan, heathen, secularist environment you can imagine. Do you think this would be a challenge for him? Would this be a test? It's a big time test. And what was the whole goal? Did you see in these verses we read? What's the whole goal of the Babylonians doing that? Why did they bring Daniel and his friends to Babylon? Because they wanted to take these Jewish boys who worshipped Yahweh and turn them into Babylonians through and through, right? I mean, that's their goal. We're taking the best of the best. You see the description of these boys. They're the best of the best. And we want to turn them into Babylonians. We want to conform them into our culture. And so you see, they're given new names. They have to learn new languages. They're told they're going to need to worship new gods. They are being brainwashed to go from being a Jewish boy living in Jerusalem to becoming Babylonians so that they can serve their new empire i'd say that's a test and if you're falling on your notes here it is daniel's test is he's forced daniel is forced to conform to his new culture 
He's being forced to conform to his new culture. Things are not looking good for these boys. And the question again, I've said it already, is how are they going to respond to this test? How are they going to respond? Are they going to conform? Are they going to choose something different? That's our question. That's our question as well this morning. Let's read verse 8 out loud on our notes, which for me is the centerpiece of this story. And like I said before, this, this is the verse I come back to over and over and over again in my life when I'm faced with these kind of tests. Can you read it with me? It says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Obviously, the word I want you to notice there is what? He resolved. Can God find a person who will stand for him in even the most hostile environment? He can. He can. His name's Daniel. The word resolve, if you're falling on your notes, literally just means determined in our hearts to stand firm. I mean, literally, in Hebrew, which in what this is written in, it has a direct relationship to the word heart. So just think about that for a minute. When we think of this word resolve, what I want to think, us to think about is this is something that happens at the very core, at the center of who I am. Daniel resolved in his core. He determined in his heart that this is what he believed. That's what resolve is all about. It's standing firm. It's having conviction. This is the life God has called me to live, and so I'm going to live that life. I've been thinking about this a lot this week, and perhaps an illustration uh, would be helpful. I want you to picture a triangle with me right now in your mind. And on one side of the triangle, we have God, and I would ask you a question. Has God equipped us with everything we could possibly need to live out the Christian life in this world? To be fully surrendered disciples? He's given us a lot. He's given us His Holy Spirit, the Bible, prayer, church, fellowship, godly counsel. I could go on and on. God has equipped us to be fully surrendered disciples, and yet we live in a world that is opposed to that. And for me, at the tip of the triangle is the world I live in, what God has provided for me. At the the tip of the triangle is my decision. What am I going to do when this test comes? Am I going to resolve or am I going to give in? Resolve is that moment when we decide, I have determined. I have determined in my heart that I'm going to stand firm for the Lord. Now, you've got to be asking at this point, if you're reading this story for the first time, what is the big deal about them eating this food? I mean, who cares if they eat the king's food here? Why are they refusing it? I mean, they took new names after all. Although, if you read the book of Daniel, you realize they never used those names themselves. They had to learn a new language. They learned all about their culture. We're told that they're the best students in Babylon. So what made this food different for them? Well, this stuff is fascinating uh, to me. It might be interesting to you, but let's say this. They had no choice in the other matter. But here is an instance where they found, here's where we can take a stand together. This is a place where we can take a stand, and I see at least three reasons probably why they didn't want to eat this food. Number one, the food would not have been kosher. That's a good Jewish word, right? These were good Jewish boys. Kosher just means food that wasn't prescribed by God's law. Of course, this food wouldn't have been prepared rightly. It wouldn't have been the kind of food they were supposed to eat, and they knew God's law, and they said, we're not going to eat it. Secondly, this food would have been sacrificed to idols, almost certainly. I mean, that's what they would do. And no good Jewish boy is going to eat food sacrificed to idols. And thirdly, and most importantly, in my opinion, is that to take this food from the king's hand, 
We don't think of hospitality this way as much today, but to take this food from this king's hand would have been like entering into a covenant relationship saying, because you provide this food for me, I declare my loyalty back to you. Interesting when we take communion to think about that whole uh, thing right there, isn't it? And so these boys, they knew, no, 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 our loyalty doesn't belong to Nebuchadnezzar. Our loyalty belongs first and foremost to the Lord, and that's where they draw the line. They resolve that they're not going to defile themselves this way. So Daniel comes up with a plan. Look at verse 9. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. I love the fact that those verses are in this story. Does Daniel's plan work out right away? Does everything go well for him? Nope. Does God ever test our resolve? (laughs) This is another test. Does God ever just say, I'm going to see? I'm going to see how resolved this person really is. i got to be honest with you. If it were me at this point, I would have given up. I would have said, I tried. I did what I thought God wanted me to do. It obviously didn't work, but Daniel doesn't. He's resolved. I know this is what God wants for my life. And so he goes back to this commander and he tries again. Verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They keep repeating that because they're reminding us these are Jewish boys. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Just test us. We'll come up with another option here. Just, if it doesn't work out, fine. It wasn't meant to be, but test us in this. I love They don't stage a protest. They just quietly say, hey, would you give us this opportunity? At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and give them vegetables instead. Now look how the Lord responds. So their response at this moment, they resolved, right? Now let's look at how the Lord responds to their resolve in the rest of this story. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. How does God respond to Daniel's resolve? He honors him. He blesses him. Have you learned in your life yet that this is often how God works? So often, I want God to bless me, and then I'll resolve? And yet, almost every story in the Bible, when you actually look at it, every moment in my life when I see a significant jump in my faith, it started first with my resolve. And when I resolved in my heart, I was determined, this is what God wants for my life. That's when God comes alongside and blesses me and honors that decision. Have you experienced that as well at times? When I think of resolve, here's what I think of. If you're falling on your notes, resolve means living for God no matter the cost. It's just all in. 
I'm all in. I'm all in on Jesus, no matter the cost. I think Jesus spoke a lot about this when it came to becoming one of his disciples, didn't he? And he told us, count the cost of being my disciple before you choose this life. Understand, there's a lot at stake here. In fact, I have one of those quotes there in your notes, Mark 8.34. Look what he says. Let's read what he says out loud together. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's fully surrendered. No matter what happens, even if it may cost me my life, I have determined in my heart that I will stand firm for the Lord. That's resolve. Friends, what does Daniel's story have to do with us today as we declare war on shallow Christianity beginning with ourselves? I think it has everything to do with us. It has everything to do with this world that we face. I believe that we live in Babylon right now, a Babylon of our own. I don't want to be all doom and gloom here. You didn't come to church for me to beat you up. That's not what I'm about right now. But I want to be real. I want to be real as the body of Christ. We have a very real enemy who does not want you or me to become a fully surrendered disciple of Jesus Christ. And hence, he throws everything he has at us in order to stop us from going there. We're in a war. That's why we say we're declaring war. It is a war. And we have to recognize that and realize that we are being faced constantly with these decisions day after day after day. And again, the question is, how am I going to respond when they come? Can we just agree right now it's getting a lot harder to follow Jesus in our world? I think of this message. I look down at these rows and these high school students, these junior high school students. It's getting harder for you. We know that. We know that. We live in an increasingly secular, materialistic, relativistic society that tells us you're dumb for what you believe, or that's outdated, or whatever else we hear. I got to say, sometimes these things are just subtle. Sometimes it's our own fault as Christians. We haven't made it easy on ourselves at times, have we? But I just think things are going to get harder and harder because God is going to refine his people. He is going to test our resolve. So let me just ask you an intruding question. If you know me, you know I like intruding questions. So here it is. How's your resolve been lately? How's it been? Have you determined in your heart that you are not going to compromise your faith in Jesus Christ no matter what because you are a fully surrendered disciple? Or are there areas in your life right now that you know that you've been saying one thing on Sunday morning and living a different thing on Wednesday night? How is your resolve? My friends from school, you know, when, we, when I started asking them about this stuff, they talked a big game at first, but then they started living a different way. And what happens is they started making excuses. You know, well, here's why. Here's why I do that. Here's why I do that. And as I look at Daniel's story, can you imagine the excuses he could have made? I came up with six of them. Can we just run through some of these excuses? Because, man, I've said every single one of these. I've said every one, single one of these. I mean, Daniel could have said, the king told me to do it. The boss man said, this is what I need to do. I mean, he was raised in a good Jewish home. He knows that he was supposed to honor those in authority. And yet, he also knows that God's law takes precedence over the law of man. And so he didn't use that excuse. He could have used the excuse of punishment. This was my favorite when I was young. 
Well, if I don't do it, I'm going to get in big trouble, so I better do it. I mean, he had no idea. Think about this. A 14-year-old boy confronting, you know, this commander. Saying, hey, I got a better idea. Why don't you give us a 10-day test? He could have been thrown out of the program at that point. He could have been thrown in prison. How dare you question me? I've been doing this for years. He could have used the excuse of punishment. I've been there and done that. He could have said, this is going to ruin my career. If I'm going to be stuck in Babylon for the next 70 years, and I want to have a good position here, I'll stand firm for God once I have a place of influence. I'll stand firm for God, you know, once I'm higher up in the company. I'll tell people about my faith then. Just, just not now. I'm just going to go with the system. This one would have been my hardest. He could have said, but man, that food looks good. I mean, he's a slave, right? I, I, I'm betting until this point they haven't been eaten so well. When all of a sudden, the greatest buffet in the world, even better than the Golden Corral, <laughs> is placed right before him. How many of you would be excited about three years of vegetables and water? I know I wouldn't. Daniel could have said, I'm a long way from home. Who's going to know? When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Or today on TV, it goes a little bit more like this. What happens in Vegas? We all know it. Daniel said, my parents could never find out about this. They're way back in Jerusalem. If they're even alive. Daniel could have said, everybody else is doing it. How hard is it? Can you imagine? I thought about this this week. We're told that Daniel and those four, three other boys weren't the only Jewish slaves taken. There were a number of other Jewish kids, and yet we're told they're the only ones that resolved not to do it. You think that would have been hard on them to have all these other Jewish boys? You think they resented them for this decision? Do You think they ever shoved a prime rib under their nose and said, you know, you want to do it? Think they got angry because it made them look bad or it made their faith look weak? Friends, this is something you know, we face. I mean, again, I just think about some of you over here. How hard is it to stand for Christ when your friends view that as, as outdated or even your Christian friends aren't doing it? But Daniel, bottom line, cared more about what God thought than what others thought. Worst, last of all, the worst excuse he could have given is that God abandoned me, so why should I give a rip about following him anymore? But as we saw in verse 2, does God ever abandon his people? Never. Does he test his people? He tests his people, and yet he is always with us even in those tests, and Daniel believed that. Amazingly, if you're following on your notes, Daniel made no excuses. He trusted that God's ways were best. He didn't say, I'm going to try not to. I'm not going to do it very much. I hope I won't. He said, I will not. I will not. I have resolved in my heart not to defile myself this way. Today in our Babylon, if you're falling on your notes again, I think there are three primary areas our resolve will be tested. Three primary areas. There's more, but I only have so much time to talk. And what I'd like to do for the rest of our time is address these three areas. I'm going to give you a number of examples because nothing becomes dynamic in our lives unless it becomes specific. These examples may not hit you in your life stage, but maybe you can think of some other ones that would be similar to these. So we're going to talk about three areas. I think the tests are coming. 
The test of resolve are coming. Number one, the test is going to come in our moral resolve. And what I mean by that is our physical and mental purity. Physical and mental purity. Let's talk about physical purity. We live in an oversexed culture. It is everywhere we turn. You can't drive down 6th Street without it. We live in a time and place, friends, where keeping pure in this area is openly laughed at and mocked. It is. I mean, I think about some of the recent celebrities who have come out and said, I'm waiting until marriage. Have you seen the way they get raked over the coals? I mean, they're laughed at. They're, they're thought of as, you know, old school, outdated, get with the times. We're in the 21st century. It happened to me when I was in high school. I told my non-Christian friends, listen, I'm waiting until I get married. That's what God wants for me. They laughed at me. They made fun of me. They said it's never going to happen. Are we going to face this test in our culture today? The test of physical purity? You better believe it. But we have to ask. I had to ask myself in high school, and I still do every day, do I believe that what God has for me is really the best thing for me? Do I really believe that? And if I do, then I'm going to resolve in my heart that. God makes it pretty clear in Scripture. He says the two become one flesh in what relationship? The marriage relationship. He says it in his law. He says it in the Bible. And so my question is, is that the same line that I've drawn in my life? Is that the relationship where that's okay? Now, I always want to be quick to say, is God a God of fresh starts? If we fall and fail in this area, is God a God of grace and forgiveness? You better believe it. But here's what I love about this idea of resolve. You can start today. Don't look back in the past. Don't beat yourself up. Resolve is all about today I'm going to fully surrender my life to Christ. I'm starting over, starting fresh. God is giving me a new chance. What do we do in this area, though, when the pressure comes? Married people, I'm not letting you off the hook. Some of us were just at a wedding here yesterday, and this, the pastor got up and spoke. It wasn't anybody from our church, and he reminded us again that marriage is not a contract. You know, contracts you can break. A marriage is a covenant. In marriage, we stand before God and other people who are here, and we enter into a lifelong covenant with that person. And so I ask us, those of us who are married, is that how I view it? Even when I don't feel in love with my spouse, and man, do we base our decisions on feeling so much, don't we? This is how I feel right now. This is how I'm going to act. This is how I feel right now. This is how I'm going to act. That's not a covenant. A covenant says, I am in this even when it gets hard. And friends, does marriage ever get hard? It is the hardest human relationship there is. I mean, think about it. Two people becoming one. Are you kidding me? How does that even work? Well, it works because we resolve to make it work no matter what. And it becomes also the most joyous relationship that two people can have. But are you committed? Have you determined in your heart that you are with this person even when things get hard? And again, some of you are thinking back in the past and going, oh, I didn't get that right. Let's start now. How about today? Can you start today and resolve in your heart and say, all right, things are really hard right now, but I am resolved because I made a covenant with this person before God. Let's talk about mental purity. Are we staying mentally pure as Christians? I think this one's getting harder and harder because it's so subtle. It is so subtle in our society. You know, the Bible says so much about this. 
In fact, look at Philippians 4.8, which I printed on your notes there. Can we read that out loud together? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's right there in the Bible. Put your mind on things that are encouraging, uplifting, pure. Not on things that are going to pull us down. Here we go, though. Every time I turn on that TV, here's the decision, right? Every time I choose to go see a a movie or a book that I'm going to read, here is the decision. Do I believe what God says about that, or am I going to do this way? I'm good at making excuses. I know it's rated R, but all my friends are going to see it. Or the looking at this image on the screen of my computer, I'm not doing any harm to anybody. Or here's the one I used when I was a teenager all the time. The music I listen to doesn't really affect the way I think. What are you laughing at? It does? Oh, that's why I still have those lyrics in my head today? What are we putting in our minds? Are we resolved to stay pure in this area of our life? And by the way, now that I'm a parent of a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, can I just say something to you parents here? Or grandparents for that matter? You model this for your kids. I mean, our kids are like little spies. You know that, right? They watch everything we do and everything we say. So I just have come to the conclusion, I don't want to watch anything that I wouldn't want my kids to watch. I don't want to listen to anything that I don't want my kids to listen to. I've resolved in my heart. Second test comes in our ethical resolve. Ethical resolve, and this for me just means living with integrity at all times. Living with integrity at all times. Integrity, great word. You know what it means, literally? Undivided. Think about that. It's beautiful. Someone who lives with integrity is undivided. In other words, they don't say one thing and live another way. They say what they say and they live what they live. They're undivided. They're not dualistic. Or the best definition I know many of you have heard before of integrity is integrity is who I am, if you're on your notes, even when nobody is looking. I referenced Luke 6 in your notes there. We don't have time to look at that whole passage this morning. I'd love if you circle that and perhaps read that, because in that, Jesus is talking about what it's going to take to be his disciple, a fully surrendered disciple. And one of the things he says is that a disciple is someone who lives with integrity, who says, I believe in Christ, I call him Lord, Lord, and I live that the rest of the week. In fact, look at his question. This is a probing question in verse 46. Can we read that out loud? Jesus asks, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That doesn't work. Call me Lord, and then do what I say. That's fully surrendered discipleship. That's integrity. I'm thinking right now, specifically of some of your work environments, some of your school environments. The pattern of the world today is it's okay to rip people off, to cheat on our taxes, to cheat on our tests, because as long as we don't get caught, everything's going to be fine. I mean, does this happen? This happens daily, right? You're called into your boss's office and he says, I just need you to fudge your numbers a little bit. We were a little bit off this quarter. Can you just do that uh, on behalf of the company? He's your boss. What are you going to do? Or you need to get your GPA up a few points so you get that scholarship to the school. School's expensive now, isn't it? College, really expensive. But you're not so good at math. 
Thankfully, you sit next to the smartest person in your math class, and she's made her test available for you to see. What do you do? There's the moment. There's the moment. I know some of you are faced with these decisions daily. I mean, I got it good. I work with in the church. I got it easy compared to you. And I want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge that some of you face a very difficult circumstance in your work. I have friends who go to this church who have continually been passed over on promotions because they live with this kind of ethical resolve. How do they do that? How can they do that? It's because they trust that God's ways are best for them, even if they're not going to be honored or blessed immediately, even if it's not in this world, in this life. They've resolved in their hearts. They're going to stand firm for God no matter what. Is that easy? Can I just tell you, it is not easy. It is incredibly hard. You're going to be laughed at and ridiculed, and you're going to stick out like a sore thumb in this world. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus said we're supposed to do. Our third test is our spiritual resolve. And I just mean by that, putting, always putting the Lord first. The first and greatest command. We talked about it last week. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And again, examples, daily battle. This is a daily battle for me. I imagine it might be for you as well. Have I resolved in my heart that I'm going to spend time with God every morning or every day at some point by being in his word? Through prayer? I mean, if I really say he's the most important relationship in my life, am I living in a way that exhibits that? I know some people who are way busier than I'll ever be, and yet they have resolved that they will not miss a time alone with God to start their day, even if it means getting up at 4.30 or 5. That's resolve. That is determined in their heart that they're going to stand firm and walk this life with the Lord. And so they do that. How's that been going for you? How about with giving? You know, the Bible talks an awful lot about giving, and I'm not just talking about money right now. I'm talking about the giving of our time to his kingdom, but resources as well. Have you resolved in your heart what God is asking from you? There's some freedom in this. What it is for me isn't going to be the same for you, but have you at least resolved through a reading of his word, through the scripture, this is what God's asking for me when it comes to the area of giving? What about something like baptism? Have you been baptized? Have you resolved? I, I, I want to follow Jesus Christ, and this is the next step he wants me to take. What about taking opportunities when God opens door to share our, your, your personal faith in him? I mean, imagine you're sitting with coffee at coffee with your lady girlfriends, and one of them says, well, all religions are essentially the same, as long as you're sincere. You know what we call that? Ooh, open door. Open door. And I wonder, do we take advantage of those? I, I'm just confessing, I, I don't always. But I want to be a person who resolves in my heart to stand for the Lord. The list could go on and on. I could spend all day giving examples. But here's the thing. Have we determined in our hearts in these three areas that we will be resolved? Of course, this begs the underlying question. I wonder if many of you have been asking it this morning is why should I? Why should I even care about this? Why should I resolve? Why did Daniel resolve? And here's, here's the answer for me at least. It's because if you're falling on your notes, God is looking for resolved people who can influence this world. That's what he's doing. It goes back to our mission. I don't know why God did it, but he put it in our hands as his people. We're to go into this world and become and make disciples. How do we do that? 
How do we do that? I don't think we always have to do that by standing on street corners with a microphone yelling at people. I think we follow Daniel's example and live quiet lives of resolve and integrity. And if you follow the rest of Daniel's story, he was never very outspoken, but people came to him. People saw a difference in his life. He he faced persecution big time. And yet he had a huge influence on the people God put in his life. Too often in church, I think we think the opposite here. It's a lie we believe. God is looking for athletes or rock stars or heroes or really wealthy people, and he wants to make those people Christians so he can influence this world. But you know, that's almost always the opposite of how God works. He loves nothing more than to look down and say, oh, there's four teenage insignificant boys, 14 years old, perfect. Perfect. You know why? Because they have resolved in their hearts that they are going to follow me no matter what. God isn't looking for influential people to make faithful. He is looking for resolved people to make influential. Amen? Do you see the difference? Friends, part of declaring war on shallow Christianity means at this church, that's the kind of people we're becoming. That's the kind of people we're becoming here together. So the closing question I have for us is this. Have I resolved in my heart to live for Christ no matter what? No matter the cost, will I be a Daniel? Will I be a Daniel starting today and stand firm as a fully surrendered disciple to him? You know another reason why we do that? It's because Christ did it for us, didn't he? Christ stood firm for us in the face of probably the most difficult, not probably, for sure, the most difficult storm and trial ever. In fact, I was thinking as we prepare ourselves for communion this morning, a verse came to me from Isaiah, which was a prophecy looking ahead to Jesus. I want you to look at these words as you prepare your heart for communion. Speaking of Jesus, it says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. He knew all those things were coming. He knew all those things were coming. Now read this next part, this next part of the verse with me out loud. It says, Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. You want to talk about some resolve? Jesus knew what was before Him. And yet He set His face like flint. Why? It's what we're remembering here for you. For me. Because he loved us. And so when I think about my response and resolve, all I can do is look to the cross and say, if you could do that for me, I want to do that for you. So we're going to take communion, and my encouragement to you this morning is as the trays are being passed, that you would just spend some time in prayer. We're going to give you some silent moments. Maybe you just need the Holy Spirit to encourage you. It's been hard standing for Christ where you are. You just need some time to encourage. Maybe, you know, one of the acts of the Spirit is also to convict in a good way. Not condemn, convict. And communion is an amazing opportunity for us to just come before the throne of grace, confess our sin, and receive His forgiveness maybe today you just need to be strengthened he wants to come alongside of you as you walk out this place it's going to be difficult 
but you want to resolve in your heart today. So as these trays are being passed, these are opportunities for us to offer our hearts back to the Lord. Just to let you know, if you may be visiting with us, what's about to happen. First of all, we always want to say this is an open communion table. That just means if you are a fully surrendered disciple of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to take this, even if you are not a part of this church. If you haven't made that decision yet, you're just investigating Jesus at this time, we always say, welcome to you. We're glad that you feel comfortable to be here. Ask your questions. However, we would simply ask that you pass the trays as they come your way. It's a sign of respect. It's the meal that we take because we've entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus. Nobody's here to look down on you. We're glad you're here, but we just ask that you use this time to examine your own life and where you stand with him. The only other thing I'll mention is you're going to get two cups. You'll take them out. If you wouldn't mind holding on to those so we can take those all together as his family, as his body, that's what we're going to do. So now we just give you this time. Go to the Lord in prayer. Let him search out your heart this morning.